0: So, what if rolling is just walking and Finkel is Einhorn? Good morning. Happy Monday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Very solid weekend. Hope you guys had a great one too. Um, time's a wasting, and so we're going to dig right into uh, today's Q&A. And this comes from Mihail. Mihail has a rolling question, and then it's a coincidence. Had a mentorship call this morning that was also deep into the rolling patterns as well, and so uh, this will be kind of fun. Um, I've been tr- Mihail says, I've been trying to figure out the difference between the three types of rolling patterns. Um, lower body initiates with the upper body follows. The upper body initiates with the lower body follows, and where the trunk is kept stable and the whole body moves as a unit. And so, so what Mihail's trying to do, he's trying to differentiate this in regards to the type of activities that they might be related to. So he says, well, you know, if we uh, want to improve rotational movements where the lower body initiates, he might relate that to, to punching or golf. The second type might be kicking. And then where we're braced, um, it's, it's where we're trying to manipulate the, the pressures in the ribcage. And, and I think that we can actually make this even simpler than that. Um, but I love the fact that you're that you're identifying the difference in in the rolling patterns themselves because there is a difference. Now, let's just talk about this grossly first as to why we would want to use these these rolling activities in the first place. First and foremost is is we get favorable shape changes that we can't necessarily get when we're working against gravity, and so. Let's say, for instance, that I have a wide infrasternal angle individual. They don't turn well. They have a lot of superficial compressive strategies. And I'm trying to get the anterior-posterior expansion back to allow some element of turning. And so what this does do, because I've reduced gravity, I've reduced the active-compressive strategy, and I can promote some of that expansion and and turning. Now, one of the things you want to try to consider here is that when we do sideline Activities in in these these pseudo static positions that all we're doing is is sort of a partial rolling activity to begin with So we're taking advantage of gravity um, To to promote this shape change and while it appears that these things are static What we're actually doing is we're actually producing the ability to roll and what you're going to see here in just a minute As a rolling is actually walking so we're actually promoting the ability to make these turns and produce a a normal uh, movement capability against gravity So um, what we wanna think about then is once we can capture the expansion, once we can capture the ability to turn, is that we're gonna just bring people up from the ground and then that's how we can sort of progress uh, the programming. Now the one constraint that we have, uh, again to our advantage, is is we have the floor available to us. And so the floor is actually gonna provide us an element of, of a compressive strategy which allows us to shape change without having to promote more active strategies. So that is one con- consistent constraint and we're gonna take advantage of that. And so assuming normal movement capabilities, um, most of our rolling is going to be initiated similarly. So we have to have a shape change to initiate the roll. And it's actually gonna look like we're gonna roll in the opposite direction when we first create the this shape change. But because we don't have active muscle compression on, on the one side, we're actually gonna fall in the direction Um, that we're going to roll so that, excuse me, so that gives us a little bit of an advantage there. Where things get really interesting is when we start to to get over towards the side. And so this is where we're gonna see the differentiation between initiating with the upper extremity versus initiating with the lower extremity. So the simplest way to look at this is, again, we look at this as as a gate pattern. So if we have a lower extremity lead, this is gonna move us towards early propulsion because what we're gonna do is we're gonna create a yielding action On the upside uh, posterior aspect of the axial skeleton so we're creating a delay in the axial skeleton so again so if you look at the 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 photo here we got a left posterior expansion um, and we're going to lead ourselves from an externally rotated orientation into an internally rotated um, uh, orientation towards maximum propulsion so if i'm lacking propulsion or internal rotation, then I'm probably going to initiate the rolling activities with my lower extremity lead. So again, I'm trying to create the delay strategy on this, this upside. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm I'm creating an overcoming action on the downside, so, so don't forget about that. Now, if I'm going to go with an upper extremity lead, now we're talking about a late propulsive uh, strategy. So what we're creating here is an overcoming uh, action to advance one side of the axial skeleton forward. And so if I'm moving from say maximum propulsion from internal rotation to external rotation, then this is going to be the strategy that I'm going to use because I'm lacking the ability to move through this middle through the max propulsive um, actions to get to the end so I can get to late late propulsion. If I want to create a max propulsion or or work through the middle propulsive Um, phase uh, of gait then this is where i'm going to start to use um, a position that is going to bias me towards internal rotation and so we're going to initiate this a little bit differently so we're going to make sure that that we have hips and shoulders at approximating that 90 degrees so right in that that sticking point um, area that if we were upright and working through a split squat or a squat this would be be this this orientation so what we need to recognize is that if we walk faster or if we sprint or at peak forces of throwing or jumping or whatever it might be, um, this is going to be the strategy that we're going to use. So there's a less less of a differentiation in regards to to the the axial skeleton here, and so everything's going to sort of move as as one large block. We still have yielding and overcoming actions. It's just that the orientation is a little bit different in regard to where that expansion strategy is going to take place. So if we're rolling in in this internally rotated orientation. The expansion is gonna be in the posterior lower aspect of the thorax, posterior lower aspect uh, of the pelvis to help us initiate that roll. And so again, um, this might be something that would show up eventually in your programming as like a kettlebell arm bar. So ultimately, we're gonna superimpose some load on this. We're gonna get a higher threshold um, uh, of output and eventually, this is going to create a little bit more of a stabilized orientation of the of the axial skeleton. So, Mihail I hope this helps you a little bit. Um, don't overcomplicate complicate this. Look at it as as how you're going to initiate a gait pattern, and I think you'll you'll find um, a, a solution here. It'll also allow you to eliminate interference. So, as we're trying to capture certain movement capabilities, we don't want to create interference. So, again, your rolls can be consistent. With, with your intended outcomes. So, um, again, hope that answers your question. Everybody have a great Monday. If you have any more questions, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you guys. So the gods have spoken. We're going to talk about knee pain today. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand, and it is perfect all right man another busy tuesday I had mentorship calls uh this morning did a bunch of virtual consults and so it, it, as a result of all this uh we've had sort of this perfect storm of knee issues so i thought it would be a good idea to review some of our some of our principles and concepts in regards to to knee pain so this will apply to anyone with some some diagnosis, um, whether it be just anterior knee pain, quadriceps tendinopathy, patella, patella tracking problems, um, whatever whatever it may be, um, but it, it's going to be a very very similar presentation under many of these circumstances, and so let's represent this with a little bit of a chessboard, and the chessboards get kind of ugly under these circumstances. Um, because you see a loss of just about everything. So everything is going to be in deficit. So all of our ER measures are going to be in deficit. All of our IR measures are going to be in deficit. And so when we have the loss of ER, we have the loss of IR, we're typically going to see a knee under these circumstances that is sort of stuck in a screw home uh, position. So we've got that tibial femoral ER. They're going to have a relatively high arch with the traditionally referred to plantar flexed First ray. So this is an anterior orientation of the pelvis, and that pelvis. And as I said, it's a it's a tibiofemoral ER at the knee. But the thing we have to represent here is that we've got a distal femoral IR and a proximal tibial ER. So there's actually a twist in, in the in the in the bones here that we're going to, to deal with. And then we've got this foot that is also following the same representation. And it's trying to represent an early propulsive foot, but it cannot get that first metatarsal head down. So, so we're not even there yet. So we've got a foot that's that's still in a in a compensatory position under under many of these circumstances. And so the foot position is going to be a big deal as we as we talk about this in in our ability to recover. So. To reiterate, if we went proximal to distal, we've got ER at the hip, IR at the knee, ER at the knee, IR at the ankle, and then we've got the same representation in the the foot. So we got a rear foot in ER, we got a forefoot in IR. That's the plantar flex first ray. And so you'll see the big toe getting jammed into the ground so you get a nice little fat big toe without the metatarsal uh, head on on the ground. So the way we're gonna address this, because we've got the anterior orientation of the pelvis, we wanna recapture that first. Now, we've got a secondary problem because we've got this, this foot position that's gonna make it very, very difficult for us to capture our typical position, say in this supine cross connect, which is probably where we wanna start with because we have this pretty significant deficit in hip flexion, so if we try to move somebody to 90 degrees of hip flexion for anything, we're already push, pushing them into a compensatory strategy. Um, So what we may need to do first is mobilize the foot. So go to the video on YouTube's that uh, I I did to recapture this middle propulsive foot. So We need a foot that we can push against in internal rotation. Um, because right now you've got a foot that cannot do that, so you might need to mobilize the foot. You may also need to mobilize the knee, so we need, might need to do some, some proximal tibial internal rotation mobilization to try to recapture a better knee position. This makes one of your key performance indicators knee flexion. What we really want in, in knee flexion is heel to butt. We're not going to be satisfied with the traditional you know, 135 degrees of, of what would be considered the norm. Um, Heel-to-butt flexion is going to be your, your ideal situation. That would be a supine measure, by the way. You measure that in supine. Um, so, again, you might need some some help in regards to recapturing some of these initial positions because we have to have enough internal rotation in the system to even execute our exercises to create this posterior orientation. So, consider that. Um, so, we go from the supine cross-connect because, we again, we don't have a lot of hip flexion. That should buy us some measure of, of hip ER and IR, at least allow us to get to a hook-lying position. But let's be very clear on how we're gonna set up this hook line position to continue our recapture of, of hip range of motion. Remember, we got a little bit of the tail wagging the dog here with the, with the foot position, so we always wanna make sure that we capture this from, from the foot upwards. So when you put somebody in hook-lying, you're gonna cue it this in this sequence. First metatarsal head on the table, medial heel on the table. Put something between their knees like a yoga block or a ball or a towel roll or something like that. And make sure that they do not squeeze their knees to to capture the foot position. Because that's probably what they're already doing when they are standing up and, and walking. So they're using orientation of the pelvis to try to to produce the internal rotation. They're gonna try to do that in supine too. What we wanna do is we wanna start to restore the relative motions from the ground up. So we capture the foot position without hip internal rotation. Now we're gonna posteriorly orient the pelvis. We're gonna do that with the posterior hip musculature, not the abdominal muscles. So you gotta make sure that you cue them out of that because most people are gonna try to hold their breath, they'll bear down, and they're gonna try to posteriorly orient the pelvis that way. Once again, that's what they're already doing. Um, when they're in standing. So we want to break them of that of that sequence as well. So we've got the foot position, we've got the pelvis position. Now we wanna apply some, some pressure to whatever you have between their knees because what we need to do is we need to move the, the posterior lower musculature in the hip from concentric to eccentric and, and that's gonna do it. So now you've set up your hook line, you drive your hook, hook line activities. We're gonna recapture even more of that posterior orientation of the pelvis. We're gonna reduce the concentric orientation that was limiting our hip flexion measures. And so now we have bought ourselves some hip flexion, which is great because chances are we're going to be able to move somebody into half kneeling progressions and, and split stance variations because we need that we need the knee flexion position to untwist the distal femur. So, let's go back to old school physical therapy where all knee problems were blamed on a weak BMO. Well, they weren't exactly wrong. They just had the, the they just had the wrong concept in mind. Typically, what you're going to have when you have these tibiofemoral ER situations, if you've got, is that you've got a, a distal vastus lateralis that is concentrically oriented, and you get a VM BM or VMO vastus medialis that is eccentrically oriented, and so that's why we've got got this nice little twist going on because the VL is an internal rotator of that distal femur. VM is an ER muscle for the distal femur, and that's what we gotta recapture. So this is why we wanna put people in right knee up, half kneeling activities. We're gonna superimpose some some rotational force onto that. So we have to drive that, that ER moment um, a, a little bit harder, but we're gonna respect 90 degree angles. So we're 90 degrees at the pelvis relative to the imaginary frontal plane to 90 degrees of hip flexion, 90 degrees of knee flexion, and we gotta capture our foot cues. So again, we can't ignore the foot cues because again, we gotta eliminate the tail wagging the dog concept. So once we do that, we can untwist the knee, use your KPI of your knee flexion as your indicator of recapturing the the positions. But remember, you got a foot, you got a knee, and you've got pelvic orientation to deal with here um, in regards to the orientation of of the knee itself. A little add-on FYI. If you're able to capture the knee position manually or through your other exercises, but you find that that you're not getting those changes to stick, what you may need to do is add in some tibialis anterior retraining. So tibialis anterior tends to be eccentrically oriented when we have this tibiofemoral ER situation. So we need to teach it to become more concentric as we uh, flex the knee and, and dorsiflex the ankle. And so we retrain this, and this is gonna help you manage that proximal tibial er so ways to measure your success in this circumstance so do i get the heel to butt flexion kpi to return to what we would consider normal do i have a normal knee orientation or do i still have a tibial tubercle that's that's trying to twist hard into er so so pay attention to that you see the little white arrow here in the picture that literally is the tibial tubercle in its in its orientation of er i suggest you take some pictures to help you compare your befores and your afters as well in addition to your hip measures, your knee measures and your foot orientation. So hopefully that guides you a little bit in regards to how you're gonna address some of these knee issues. So pelvic orientation, knee orientation, foot orientation, if you have any questions or concerns, send them to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com and I will see you guys tomorrow. If you can't run as fast or jump as high as you'd like to Blame your parents. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, Wednesday, tomorrow, 6 a.m., Thursday, Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Please join us. The last few calls have been outstanding. Big group last time, looking forward to, to tomorrow morning already. All right, with that in mind, it's Wednesday, so it's always tight in the morning if we got to crank this one out. Okay, let's go to the Q&A. This comes from Malty. I'm sorry, Malty. Malty was uh, um, on the uh, Coffee and Coaches Conference call last week, and she comes in with a question. She says, I have a client that's a high-level field athlete. Who frequently suffers from hamstring strains and occasional hip flexor tightness. He's gone through a lot of PT with fairly inconsistent results. Is there anything that I should be especially aware of in terms of his potential compensations? It seems like coaching a posterior tilt has just been beaten to death with this guy and has not done much help. Okay, so we got to think about this for a second as to what being a field athlete entails. And I'm going to, excuse me. I'm going to oversimplify this to a massive degree we're talking about multifactorial issues here out the wazoo but but let's let's narrow this down so i have a situation where i have to change direction i have to accelerate and then i have to achieve top speed so we're going to talk about those three things and so to do that i have to be able to change the configuration of my pelvis to achieve these outcomes and so let me grab the pelvis here and so what i'm talking about is, is when we when we raise and lower the center of gravity um, uh, when we're changing direction or accelerating or, or top speed, the, the pelvis actually has to change its configuration. So top speed configuration is actually gonna be biased a little bit more towards what, what we would see in, in uh, say like a, a narrow ISA type of thing, we're gonna be biased a little bit towards that that inhale position. As I lower my center of gravity, I have to apply greater forces into the ground, I'm gonna to move towards that, that exhale position. So my ability to move through these, these orientations is, is kind of a big, big deal. Now, with a field athlete though, you're gonna have a bias that's gonna tilt that pelvis forward. So we'll see this in a lot of, lot of explosive and really, really fast athletes because they have to apply so much force into the ground cuz that's where your where your your force production is is going to be right so we have to I have to capture as much internal rotation as i possibly can so if i anteriorly orient my pelvis i can push harder into the ground so my change of direction is better my acceleration is better my top speed is better and so again so this is one of those situations where if i just try to drive somebody into this, this symmetrical posterior tilt in an attempt to alleviate um, some, some measure of, of the so-called hip flexor tightness, um, you're probably going to fail because what you're going to end up doing is you're going to get this full posterior orientation of the pelvis as a single unit. So we're not going to get relative position changes that we would want to see in regards to our, our performance on, on the on the field but you're going to see a lumbar flexion substitution and this full pelvis orientation so what i would recommend under these circumstances when you're trying to make a favorable change um, in in these field athletes is to use something that is that is asymmetrical so um, you're also probably going to see a lot of compressive strategies, so they're going to get that posterior lower compression. These people have limited hip flexion, and so we can't move people into even a hook line position or, or something where the hips will be bent 90 degrees. So we're going to start with something that's a little bit more close to, to full extension. And so this is where like your supine cross connects come into, into play. It's a great place to start. We can actually use the compensatory strategy to our advantage to recapture. Um, some of the, the the internal rotation, aka hip extension, by tradition, which will alleviate some of the the pelvic orientation issues that might be producing some of the hamstring issues, as well as the hip flexor tightness, and then we want to move you into something that would be more like the the prone propulsive strategies, and then we're going to move this upward into a standing activity where we'll go through a whole progression of a marches, a skips, etc. Um, to, to try to teach them how to control this orientation in a dynamic environment. But, Malti, what your question has led me to is let's look at some structural issues um, that we might be able to utilize to tweak training a little bit more um, where we can identify these, these performance-related biases by physical structure. So this is actually kind of interesting. Um, I haven't really talked about this all, a whole lot, and so what we wanna do is we wanna take a look at the entire configuration of the axial skeleton. So so this is not about the archetypes per se. Um, what this is gonna be is a, is a structural relationship in, in physical diameter of thorax to pelvis because we, we, have, we have certain advantages and disadvantages based on our structure, which is why I let in with this whole comment about blame your parents for everything because they're the ones that gave you, gave you your structure. So if we look at the differential between a, a thorax and a pelvis, what we have is is fluid pressure and and velocity mechanics in play here, and so so what I'm going to do is I'm going to break this up into into three. I'll give you three representations. There's more than there's more than three, but but again I'm going to use these as as um, something to, to sort of get us started on on this level of discussion. So let's just say that I have a thorax that is that is narrower in in circumference than, than the pelvis. So we're going to call this this a, a, a narrow to wide. Uh, configuration. What happens internally with the internal mechanics is I have a gradient bias that is downward which means that it's easier for me to, to push push my guts downward so there's a higher velocity that's driving me into the ground right away. And what this is going to do as an athlete is that it's going to increase the, the duration of my ground contact times. And so that means that I'm also going to have a lesser upward velocity, so I'm going to be a little bit more challenged in that regard. It doesn't mean I can't be fast, doesn't mean I can't perform at very, very high levels, We're just we're talking about biases here. Um, so, But what it's going to do, it's going to give me better side-to-side agility. It's easy for me to move the internal forces from side-to-side, but it's going to steal my top speed. Um, because, again, I, I, for top speed, you've got to be able to throw the guts up into the air as you're bouncing across the ground. It's just harder to do in this configuration. But because my ground contact times are a little bit longer, I might have good acceleration. Um, it steals my vertical jump a little bit. Um, Which, again, um, I don't know how important that is when when I'm a field athlete because, again, it it, it just depends on what type of a position player that I'm going to be. Now, if we looked at this kind of in the gym, it's like, let's just take a box squat. We're going to apply this box squat to everybody. Um, How would I bias this box squat to enhance my ability to perform on, on the field? I'm going to use a reverse band box squat. What the reverse band is going to do is it's actually going to help me accelerate those guts upwards. It's going to train me to do that. And, and so there's there's a way that, that you can bias the training. So I write one training program for all my field athletes, but I can bias it um, directly for each individual athlete. So they benefit from this. So the reverse band is gonna help me elevate the guts because that's my greatest challenge. Now, if I go to a wide circumference in the thorax and a narrow circumference of the pelvis, now my gradient bias is upward. So this is gonna reduce my ground contact times and it's gonna increase my upward velocity. So these are, these are the people that tend to stand out as, as athletes because um, what this does is it does gives me better top speed. I have a lesser acceleration, but, but because my top speed is so good, I tend to make up for the lack of acceleration. So these people look good under almost every circumstance. Um, they, they don't have as great a change of direction um, like, our, like our, our person with the, with the wider relative circumference of the pelvis. But once again, it's like they just make up for it with top speed. If I want to apply this in the gym I'm gonna, and, and I'm writing my program and everybody's doing a box squat that day, um, I'm going to have this guy just do a regular good old box squat. The basic premise here is you've got somebody that has a configuration that makes them an outstanding athlete by most people's perspective. Just don't screw them up. So now let's take a look at somebody that, that, is, that is a wide circumference of the thorax and a wide circumference of the pelvis. Now, in this situation, I have a relative similarity between the the upper and lower part of the axial skeleton. So I don't have a gradient bias where I would see the velocity changes internally um, that I would see with the other two configurations. So what this means is is that I got a guy that can probably produce a heck of a lot of force, but it takes him time to do so. Um, So again, this guy is going to be a guy that that is really good at moving other people around. He can produce a lot of force. He doesn't get moved around a lot um, in and of, of himself, Um, but because he he needs more time to produce the force, he's not the fastest guy on on the field. Um, He might be still a great athlete, but again, he's not gonna have the greatest vertical jump, he's not gonna have great top speed, he's not gonna have great acceleration, but again, he's a great positional person. Under these circumstances, what I want to do is I want to teach this guy to, to, to throw his guts up as much as he possibly can. So if I take this guy into the gym, what I'm going to do with this box squat under these circumstances, I'm going to do a banded squat because I want what I want to do is I want to teach him to create the rebound of the guts off that the, the pelvic outlet as much as possible to create as much... Um, for us as I can in the shortest possible amount of time. And so hopefully that gives you an an idea of how this structural stuff actually does influence the level of performance. And all we have to do is is understand how these, these influences affect um, top speed, acceleration, changes of direction, and we can tweak programs to individualize it for their physical structure. If you have any other questions, please send them to askbillhartman at gmail.com askbillhartman at gmail.com uh, Tomorrow, coffee and coaches conference call and I will see you guys then. 6 a.m. See ya. Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect.
1: Um, uh, when we're talking about the, the movement of the shoulder, um, I know we've talked about shoulder flexion. It goes from ER, IR to ER again. Um, th- does that same pattern hold when you're moving uh, laterally? Like when you're raising your arm like this way? Like are you yeah, starting so, from ER, IR yeah. E-R to ER again?
0: Yeah. So, the, so- Again, we're we're talking about about shape change and space, right? Okay, so so but I can take away that space anytime you want just by 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 shape, right? So there will always be be transitions from ERs to IRs depending on where you are. So so um, if you're doing a jerk, if you got the bar overhead and a jerk, is the shoulder an ER or IR?
1: Um, when. When you're overhead, yes, sir. Your IR should be IR. Yeah. (laughs) Otherwise, but but
0: isn't that shoulder flexion?
1: Um, it is. Yeah.
0: So this is flexion
1: plus.
0: (laughs) Well, it it it's it's traditional end range shoulder flexion, but it is an IR position under those circumstances, isn't it? That's what's supposed to happen. See, that's the shape change that I'm talking about. It's like so you can't say, oh, it goes, it goes. E R I R E R, because it doesn't. It depends on the context. It depends on the shape change. So if you watch, if you take a, if you take a, a, a freeze frame of an Olympic weightlifter in in a profile view, side view, a, as they complete the jerk, their head's in front of their shoulder girdle, right? Should be. But, yeah <laughs> the weight the weight is over the shoulder girdle and their their sternum is expanded forward because if you don't do that where does the bar go manuel um
1: you probably lose it in front you'll yes, exactly. it because yes exactly because there's that.
0: nothing under the bar right mm-hmm. so how do i create stuff under the bar i take both scaps i compress them against the posterior thorax i shove you forward i internally rotate that's my force producing position right i'm producing force uh, up into, into the barbell. So I'm turning inward. I'm IRing. My head's going to go forward because I'm compressing dorsal rostral. I am, I am pushing the lower cervical spine forward and I'm pulling my head back in, in, in uh, response to that. But I have to have the expansion anteriorly, one, because I need IR and I need space. I need an expansive, expansive thorax underneath the bar to stack the weight on top of. Otherwise, I can't do it. So again, it's like when you say, is it the same? It's like, okay, what are we doing? Right? What's the shape that 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 we're creating? How much load is there? If I am in a, if I'm in a, you know what a T push-up is? In the, it's like a it's like a side plank where your, you know, arms are out to the sides and you're, you're doing the, you know, like, like, like you go from push-up position, then you rotate into the to the side mm-hmm. plank. It's mm-hmm. like, how much expansion do you have there on, in, on that loaded side? Not very much. Because there's a lot of pressure there, which means I have to IR that. But if I'm laying on the table and I can expand, then maybe I have a little bit of ER there too that's going to allow me to move into horizontal abduction. Mm -hmm. So that's why we can't, that's why I am so adamant about killing this arc concept, right? Which is probably my fault because I drew it on a whiteboard, which is two-dimensional. And so everybody says, "Oh, it's a flat plane, and it's an art." No, it's a space that moves depending on what shape you are.
1: Right. Yeah. So uh, I, w- I was just thinking, okay, if you're moving this way, then you'd expect to see the same pattern.
0: Yeah, it's like relatively speaking, you are correct that that you're going to have these er and ir spaces, assuming assuming you have the ability to change the shape. But if I, if I alter the context of the activity, the minute I induce load into this situation where I am having to produce force, where I'm having to compress, right? My biases can change or they are reduced. Right. Right, so the minute I put a bunch of load in your hands, my ER space starts to compress, which means that I will be biased towards internal rotation under most of those circumstances because I have to squeeze myself to produce that force.
1: I you you always say that to access IR you need ER, but if you compress a lot, you lose uh, the external rotation bias and yes. you get. Ayad so how do you do to move under loads if you lose that if you need it to access this like if i want to squat heavy i still need er right yes. but if i i load i will lose my er yes. so i will do you think that automatically automatically when you want to do heavy things you have to get substitutions and you can't get I don't know how if I express myself well. So
0: so under certain circumstances, yes, there will be substitutions. And we kind of just talked about it a minute ago when we talk about, okay, so when you see somebody that, that does a traditional deadlift versus a sumo deadlift, so the sumo positions the sockets outward, so they face out. Yes. That's a substitution for relative motion external rotation. Yes that allows me to capture an internal rotation to produce force against the ground so I can lift the weight. Okay. Okay. But that's not relative motion. That's, that is, that is a compensation to allow me to do something okay. in, in internal rotation that I don't have enough room for. Um, you ever see somebody try to squat with a barbell and they can't break parallel and then you move their feet out and then they can break parallel? Yes. So all you did was you created a substitution for their lack of external rotation. So you turn the system outward, not relative motion, okay? It's a compensatory strategy. And now they have, they have a, an expanded field. See, that's why I say it's a field. It's a, it's a space around you where external rotation can exist. And then you can access the internal rotation that you need to lift the weight. So relative motions only happen in an unloaded environment i wouldn't say unloaded i would say that there's a threshold that that you would have to cross where you would start to lose it right if i pick up my pen that's loaded technically speaking and it's a really you know extreme example this doesn't stop my relative motion because the the load doesn't challenge me however if my pen weighed 40 pounds i might have to change my strategy
1: okay and would um would uh, your strengths influence that i mean if uh, for example yeah. a, a male has a relative motion it will need more weight
0: before losing the relative motions yes. that's what okay. that's what getting gym stronger grace gym stronger right that's what getting gym stronger is okay so for me to perform a squat with a heavy barbell <clears throat> i have to have enough relative motion so my my femur and my knee right or my my femur and my tibia have to be able to bend for me to squat down. Well, that's relative motion there, right? So I have to be able to do that. So what that means is is that I have now increased the coordination of my system to produce the upward force or the force into the ground that's going to allow me to push upward and still capture enough eccentric orientation to move. Just enough, just enough. The stronger I get, the more concentric orientation I need, and I still need enough eccentric orientation. That's how, so that's when your strength starts to top out, right, you can't get any stronger because I I need so much upward force that I give up my eccentric orientation and I can't move anymore. What if your plantar fasciitis isn't just a foot problem? good morning happy friday i have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect oh that was good okay man we are really crunched on friday hope you um, got a look at yesterday's Coffee and Coaches conference call, by the way. It was another great one. Um, we, we had a really good time. Hope to see you uh, next week. All right, rolling into the weekend. We're going to dig into today's Q&A. I went back and forth a few times with, with uh, Vic on on the email and uh, talking about plantar fasciitis, and, and he had some questions like, how does this arise, and what are some of the mechanisms? And and uh, I think that, that, number one, I think that the, the diagnosis is probably – Um, inaccurate in most situations. I think you can get an itis on the bottom of your foot for sure, but it's usually an acute situation. Step on a rock, come hard out of a cut, and you can certainly create the the irritation necessary to produce an inflammatory situation but i think in most cases especially with the people that that, that come to me with these insidious onset of, of plantar foot pain um i don't think it's going to be an, an ida situation and i think if you look at some of the the soft tissue research Um, especially leaning towards tendinopathy you're going to see that that we're seeing people in these later stages of tendinopathy where there is no inflammatory situation these are degenerative situations um, that occur and most likely in my opinion i think there's going to be a blood flow issue that's associated with that too there's the tight calf tight plantar fascia hypothesis which leads people towards these these rather aggressive stretching protocols in many situations that I don't think are are terribly helpful, however, however, having said that, I think there might be a situation where um, some of that may actually be beneficial by accident, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit here. Um, the bottom of the foot's a very busy place there's a lot of muscle that's attached to the calcaneus, not just the the um, of the plantar fascia and, and the, the, the lighter medial and, and uh, lateral plantar fascia. Um, so I think that that there's not a specific foot type per se that's going to to result in, in these situations, but I do think there might be a little bit of a bias in one direction um, and I think that this has to do with the way that the connective tissues behave in regards to overcoming and yielding because we do have a situation when we're moving through propulsion where we have yielding actions versus overcoming actions and i think that that those people that are predisposed to to a prolonged or maintained overcoming action are those that are probably going to be more predisposed towards the the symptoms that are typically um thrown into the diagnosis of, of plantar fasciitis is this reason that I think that some of these stretching protocols may accidentally help? Because if if we can create any yielding action at all through some form of of tension, then then maybe you do get some relief. But I think in many situations, um, because this is not just a foot problem, this is a center of gravity issue, um, as you as you'll see here in a minute. Um, I don't think that, that it's necessarily going to be a great solution. So let's real quick go through our phases of, of the of the uh, propulsive foot so we get an idea of what we're talking about here so as you recall we're going to we're going to have three rockers we have our ankle rocker which is the heel contact to to, to where that first metatarsal head comes down to, to the surface. I've got a tibia that's, that's behind the ankle that's in, that's in ER. This is going to translate over the foot and so this is going to be our middle propulsive phase and this is where we're going to see the reduction of the arch. So we see, see the supinated foot with the arch. We're going to move towards traditional pronation which is, which is the, the lowering of the arch and then I'm going to see the re-supination of the foot and the re-ER um, under those situations. Now, I think that that those that are going to be more predisposed towards this diagnosis are going to be those that are going to be in the later stages of middle propulsion or they're going to be trying to acquire this early propulsive strategy. So if you recall, um, at at the end of, of middle propulsion, where we're going to hit that maximum propulsion. So this is maximum pronation right at the point where that heel starts to break off the off off the ground i have to create this overcoming situation and so so this is the the connective tissue behavior so they're, they're, the the tissues are behaving very very stiff at this point and i think that this is where we're going to see most of our our people that are they're dealing with with the the heel pain situations because this is the overcoming and so at ray right this very end i get this 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 high rate of loading into the connective tissues they become very very stiff now, if you have somebody that is any later propulsive foot, um, just as a reminder, if their heel is still on the ground, what you're going to see is you're going to see a decent arch, but you're going to see the toes curl under. So we're going to see this, the the the. Um, Distal phalanges there are, are going to get pulled under, so we're going to see a, a, a flexed toe representation under those circumstances. So you can differentiate between somebody that is that is biased towards their max propulsion versus the the later, because we're going to we're going to change the strategies a little bit in regards to uh, which presentation you're seeing. Um, let's go back to center of gravity real quick if I if I am anteriorly oriented I'm, I'm, I'm going to see those people that are going to have a center of gravity that is that is biased forward If I have say a narrow ISA and I have that posterior lower compression I'm also going to see somebody with that center of gravity forward and in both cases I'm going to be pushing that tibia forward So so what we want to talk about now is this rate of, of tibial translation across the foot So if I see somebody with the lower arch what I have is a situation where The the arch is low, so that allows the tibia to translate very, very quickly. That increases my rate of loading. So under those situations, um, my my first layer of strategy is number one, I got to reorient the pelvis and I need to recapture my non-compensatory hip external rotation and internal rotation. That's going to help me manage this center of gravity situation. Number two, I got to restore the arch. So in this case, there may be an orthotic solution. that that we need to utilize or perhaps a a shoe selection that's going to allow us to manage this arch. If I can bring the arch a little bit, I can slow the translation of the tibia and then that reduces the rate of loading on the connective tissues um, on on the bottom of my foot. So again, we wanna slow the tibia from moving forward. After that, what I wanna do is I wanna start to train people through this middle propulsive phase. I'm gonna start with with gradual loading. So I'm gonna do front foot elevated activities under these situations where I am translating the tibia but again, I'm managing that that arch position. If I have somebody that is farther into propulsion, so they're a, a late propulsive foot, so this is where the arch returns, And I'm starting to see some of of that toe flexion um, that you'll typically see. So this is a concentric overcoming situation. So what we wanna do here is we're gonna take advantage of the concentric orientation, but we wanna recapture the yielding action. So we're gonna take them all the way back to early propulsion. So this is all of your heels elevated activities after you reorient the pelvis and recapture non-compensatory external rotation right? So again, so heels elevated front squats, heels elevated squats. And then what I want to do is that I want to rebuild middle propulsion, just like I did for those folks with the lower arch. So hopefully that gives you a representation of what you may be looking at. Vic, I hope that gives you a little bit of a strategy to work, for, work towards. And then I hope everybody has a great weekend. I will see you guys next week.